0: Time to get started. We've got a book giveaway here. Let's get started with Old Testament survey. Palm forward. Old Testament survey, we're covering Jeremiah. We're finishing Jeremiah this week. Jeremiah, who needs a handout? Open your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Are we out? Who needs one? Carl? Yeah, these are from uh, two weeks ago. Last week we were out of power, so we just fellowshiped for an hour as it heated up. The power's on. Hopefully there is power still in the church from the Word of God going out. Power in the pulpit. That's the title of a preaching book, Power in the Pulpit. Okay, let's do a book giveaway. Let's see here. What's the theme of Jeremiah? If you can answer that first, then you get None Other by John MacArthur. The youth are going through that right now. so It's a great book. Irish. Warnings, Judgment. That's right. There you go. It's a great little book. A new one by MacArthur, None Other. All the teens are going through it chapter by chapter right now. All right, well, let's pray and then we'll get started here. Lord, we do thank you this morning that we are able to just make it here, that we are well, that we are healthy. And Lord, we pray that this week the power would stay on, that in your providence that you would see fit to help us this morning, help us to have all the things we need, all the things even that we want, but especially your word being clear to us. We pray that... Our desires, our will, our thinking is lined up with Scripture. And so, Lord, help us even in the book of Jeremiah to understand it better, to be warned, to take heed from those warnings, and to live a godly life. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so we started two weeks ago, and we didn't get real far, but I think we got to the outline. Who can remember that far back two weeks ago? Greg, you have that kind of memory? Okay, well, we went through who the author is, how he wrote it through Baruch, the dating. The focus really is on Jerusalem and how Babylon's coming to destroy Jerusalem. Those are the most commonly mentioned words. Jeremiah is mentioned in other books, especially with regards to the 70 years. It's the only book where it specifies 70 years of captivity. And so later writers like Daniel and Second Chronicles and Ezra will say this is according to Jeremiah's 70 years prophecy. So they knew, they knew the time was coming, they could count down or at least the ones who went back to Israel. Not sure if during the captivity they were really thinking much. Since 70 years, would likely the first generation that went into captivity would have died off, most of them. The theme is warning, as I said. It's the last hour. It's time to repent. So on the New Testament, we might say this is Revelation chapters 4 through 18. This is the tribulation period for the whole world. But in the Old Testament time, This is a sort of microcosm, a small picture of what's going to happen in Revelation for the whole world, the destruction of Jerusalem. Now to them, it wouldn't have been a small thing. This is a city of God. This is something that's supposed to be holy. It was holy. And they trusted in the name holy and the name of the city. And the fact that they were saved, they thought, there's no way it could be destroyed. And God warns them. He says, yes, I can do this. I will do this. You need to repent. So the purpose, why it's in the Bible, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians because of Judah's breaking of the Mosaic Covenant. That's why Jeremiah is in the Bible. It's to show Israel and us, because Paul says it's all there for us to learn, for us to be instructed by, for us to be disciplined even by. It was recorded so no one could say, this is not fair. No one could say God's not just. God told them specifically what was wrong. He told them to change. He gave them this time period. He reminded them, reminded them, reminded them with many prophets. And they did not. So you see in the book of Jeremiah how the city's destroyed and how the people are taken into captivity. We talked about how it's been neglected by the modern church and why. We talked about how it's the longest book in the Old Testament. 21,000 words. It's probably the longest in the whole Bible. According to the original language in Hebrew, 21,000 words. Probably even more in English. Since it takes about three English words to translate one Hebrew word sometimes. And I think we were in the outline here. So we had talked about Jeremiah's call, and then we looked at Judah's prophecies. And I think we were probably around the third point of B there, B3. So he spends 23, 24 chapters condemning them, laying out the case. The prophets are God's prosecutors. God's the judge and The prophets are the attorney, the prosecuting attorney. And Israel's on trial. And so he lays out all their sins. And then he gets persecuted for it. Chapters 26 through 29. You can see some of that. Let's turn there now. We'll just skim it real quick. We don't have time to read the whole book. So you see in 26, 7, there's a plot to murder Jeremiah, the priests and the prophets. Chapter 26, verse 7, the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. When Jeremiah finished speaking, all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him, saying, you must die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying this house will be like Shiloh and this city will be desolate without inhabitant?" And all the people gathered about Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So they want to kill him. Why? He spoke the truth. He told them what God had said. He told them specifically God's message, God's words for them, and they didn't like it. And so they would often just find their own prophets that would speak the words that they wanted to hear, words of comfort. Chapter 27, we start to see Nebuchadnezzar coming into the story here. 28, Hananiah's false prophecy. So if you can't get a prophet speaking what you want, you just go find one eventually, just like today, right? Can't find a church that says what you want, you just keep looking, and eventually you find one to tickle your ears. And so we have Hananiah's false prophecy there. I'll let you read that on your own. And then, Chapter 29 really starts to go into the message now to the people who are going to be exiled. So God's already sending a message to the people who are exiled. And then there's not really a book in the Old Testament that doesn't have some hope, some grace, some gospel. And here we have it right here in Jeremiah B3, the coming restoration. And so for these chapters, he's laying out God's plan to bring them back to restore them. And remember, as a prophet, he's looking at the mountain peaks. So he doesn't know when this is going to happen. He knows it's going to be 70 years in captivity. But he's looking far into the future. So you'll see in my Bible, it's chapter 30, deliverance from captivity promised. Then restoration of Jacob. Israel's mourning is turned to joy. Let's look at thirty one one. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. There's going to be joy once again in Israel. For 70 years, it's going to be desolate. It's going to be falling apart. Falling apart, the walls will fall down. The temple's been destroyed. The people have been taken. Gentiles surround the area. And God says to Jeremiah, it's going to be joyful. He says, verse 5, again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters will plant and will enjoy them. This would have been great. We take it for granted when we read that. But they're going to sit in captivity and look back on this book and say, how can that be possible? Plant vineyards? Have a merry old time? Sing aloud in verse 7? They're weeping and and wailing. You read some of the Psalms about the captivity, and it says, We hung up our harps. We just hung up our harps because there was no more joy, nothing else to sing. We'll come back to this little section on the restoration to look at the new covenant. So, again, Jeremiah's thrown in prison, 32. 33 comes back, talks more about the restoration. Then we actually get a historical recollection of the collapse of Jerusalem, a historical account. And we see it in 34, 35. You can also read about it in other books, of course, of the Bible. But then we move on to the Gentile prophecies and 46 through 51. So it's not just Jerusalem that's going to be punished, but the Gentiles as well. Skip forward to chapter 46. Because remember, to the Israelite, yes, they sinned, but they would have also been thinking, what about the Gentiles? It's like when you have two kids that do the wrong thing in your family and you punish one of them. The other one's saying, well, what about him? This would have especially been the case with Israel. If we're God's special people, if we're God's elect, and we've been punished like this, what about the Gentiles who've never listened to you? They never even started out with the Bible. They never even started out with the truth. They could care less. They wanted to worship false gods. So he talks about, first of all, Egypt in chapter 46, because Egypt is a huge power at the time. Uh, 47, Philistia. 48, Moab. Similar to Isaiah, different, of course, prophecies, but hitting the same countries. Ammon in 49, Edom also in 49, Damascus. So the problem really with a lot of these little countries around Israel is that they rejoiced. They hated Israel too, and they rejoiced when Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem. They celebrated. They even helped the Babylonians. They would either give them supplies, join some of the men with the Babylonian army, They rejoiced, and God says they'll be punished for that. And in chapter 50, it's Babylon itself that will be punished. Even though God had used them, even though God had raised up Babylon as an instrument to bring about His justice, they still committed sin. They still desired it in their own hearts to destroy Israel, and so they'll be punished. And in the very last section, it almost feels a bit out of place because he goes back now and just sort of summarizes The destruction of Jerusalem. So it's sort of a an epilogue. He's saying, "Look, I've been talking about Jerusalem being destroyed this whole book. Then it was. Then I showed how the prophecies against all the other nations would come about. And oh, let's go back to the big issue of this book: the fall of Jerusalem. So if you wanted a three-point outline, I joked that Frank could preach the whole book in one sermon: Jeremiah's call, Judah's gall, Jerusalem's fall." Let's look at some key chapters. These are chapters, I think, that stand out. That stand out for us as Christians. Chapters that are often cited. In chapter 23, you have the wicked shepherds. And this is good because it applies to principles, even in the the New Testament church. Wicked shepherds. Woe to you. 23.1. Woe to you who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pastor, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you from the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. So the leaders, the priests, the kings, the governors... The mayors of the little towns, the people who were supposed to lead in a godly way had really scattered the flock. and They had beat down the sheep. They had run the sheep off. Not necessarily out of Israel, but just beat them down, led them astray. And he says in verse 4, I will raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them. And they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. And then he goes on to denounce the false prophets. Verse 9, As for the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I have become like a drunken man, This is Jeremiah. Even like a man overcome with wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. For the land mourns because of the curse. The pastures of the wilderness have dried up. Their course also is evil and their might is not right. For both prophet and priest are polluted. The spiritual leaders are corrupt. They tell people false things. They don't teach God's word. Even in my house, I have found their wickedness, declares the Lord. So even in God's own house, there is wickedness. Therefore, their way will be like a slippery path to them. They will be driven away into the gloom and fall down into it. I will bring calamity upon them the year of their punishment. So there's going to be a chief shepherd coming who will bring restoration to Israel, who will shepherd them, and that's Christ. And we even get sort of a, a picture, I think, of what the church is going to look like with under shepherds. There's going to be true shepherds. But even before Christ came, there were men like Ezra, men like Nehemiah, who would later come after Jeremiah and faithfully lead the people. But at this time, it's mostly false prophets, false priests, corrupt, sinful, polluted leaders that speak in God's name, but they don't speak the truth. And God's going to judge them. He did. And he'll judge them eternally. And it's the same with false teachers in the church today. We might see them be successful. We might see their churches growing, although they're kind of hurting right now since uh, about March. Uh, their prophecies and things haven't come true. But they'll pick back up again as as everything starts rolling again, as, as it has been really in Texas. But these false churches, false preachers, false prophets, they will be punished by God. You can read Second Peter or Jude to see what that's going to look like. Chapter 25 Judah's future judgment through Babylon. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah, to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. For 23 years, Jeremiah has been prophesying already, but they haven't listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again. Just like Jesus said, God keeps sending the prophets and you just stone them. And now you're going to kill the son. They will not listen. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. I do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. I do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. This was the message that the prophets should have said. The people should have listened. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, He just became king in Babylon, and God is saying now he's going to choose Nebuchadnezzar to do something, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, the lighting of the lamp. Everybody's going to be gone. There's no productivity, there's no business, there's no grinding of wheat, no lamps in the houses. This whole land will be desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Babylon's coming. God sent prophets after prophet after prophet, and you would not listen. And Jeremiah says, I've been proclaiming the truth for 23 years, and you would not listen. You can't ever say in the Bible that God doesn't have mercy and grace. For 23 years of Jeremiah's life, he, pre- he preached the same message. Repent. And they didn't listen. For hundreds of years, since really Moses, he had been clearly saying, repent, follow the Lord, you'll be blessed in the land, you'll stay there forever. Or if you sin, if you follow false gods, you'll be cursed. And so finally, there's a stopping point. God doesn't let this go on into infinity. He doesn't let sin go on forever and ever. And he says, I'm going to destroy you. It's going to be with Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, and you're going to be gone for 70 years. Of course, I didn't like that message, but that was the truth. Chapter 30, return and restoration from captivity promised. We've read some of that already. Even after judgment, God is going to bring back a remnant. He's going to bless the nation. Gets into more details on that. We'll look specifically at a passage in a minute on the New Covenant. So 31 and 32, restoration, New Covenant, Jeremiah is in prison. He buys a field. And God explains. So just to summarize that, Jeremiah is told to go buy a field. But here comes the Babylonians to destroy the country, destroy the city. Why would you buy a field? Well, the reason is to show that if you buy this, it's going to be in your family line. And when the people come back, they're going to inherit it. It's just an example, a lived out example of God's faithfulness. And of course, people were glad to sell land. They were getting rid of land. They were collecting as much money as they could to get out of town and hide out from the Babylonians. What's this crazy guy Jeremiah doing buying a field? What's this mean? Everybody's watching Jeremiah. Well, it means God's going to keep his promise. 34 through 44, the fall of Jerusalem. 52, again, the destruction of Jerusalem. Key passages. Let's look at God's foreknowledge here. Election's kind of controversial. It shouldn't be, but it is in Christianity today. And here we have Jeremiah clearly being selected. Before he's even born, before he had done either good or bad. one four Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb I knew you. This is not that God knew Jeremiah would be born. God knows everything. This is not talking about his omniscience. This is talking about his personal love. I especially knew you, I especially loved you, I chose you. It's kind of the idea of the foreknowledge in Romans eight twenty eight through thirty. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart before you were even born. I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then he gives him his task. In verse 10, see, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So Jeremiah is a teenager. He hears this message from God. And God says, look, before you were even born, before you were even created in the womb, I have planned this for you. I have chosen you to do this. And of course, it's not good news he's going to go preach. It's the bad news. It's repent. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Now there's good news in the message, but overall, he's called the weeping prophet because he's weeping over what's coming and what happens. 11, 1 through 14. This is why Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Have a look at chapter 11. This is important to understand. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, hear the words of this covenant. And speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, which I commanded your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt. He's talking about the Israelite covenant, what we call the Mosaic covenant, the Ten Commandments, and everything that followed in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then summarized in Deuteronomy by Moses to the next generation from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice, and do according to all which I command you, so you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This is what he told them. In order to confirm the oath which I swore to your forefathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. Then I said, Amen, O Lord. And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all the words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. So go preach this message. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning persistently, saying, listen to my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear. Not only they didn't obey, they didn't even listen. They didn't even want to listen. Oh, that's Jeremiah. We're moving along. I don't want to hear him preach again. It's always bad news, you know, bad news, Jeremiah. But they walked, each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. So the covenant was simple. Although we see lots of laws, it's complex in that way. But the blessings and curses were simple. You do what God says, you'll be blessed. You don't do what God says as his people, you'll be cursed. This is the old covenant. Now, do do what God says takes up many books of the Old Testament. As I said, at the end of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus especially. But they had help. They had it written down by Moses. They had the priests, the Levites, which were supposed to help teach. The king was supposed to rule. They had prophets. And yet they didn't do it. So here's what's going to happen. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my words. And they have gone after other gods. So they're worshiping false gods at this point. The gods of the nation. The house of Israel, that's the north already gone at this point. The house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. They've broken it. They said they would follow it. They agreed to follow it, but they broke it. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster on them, which they will not be able to escape. Though they will cry to me, yet I will not listen to them. There is a point where God's no longer going to leave the doors open for repentance and salvation. We see that with the words of Christ. He says, there's a time. The gate is narrow. Get through it before it closes. And there's a similar message here in Jeremiah. Verse 12, Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods whom they burn incense. So th- they burn incense to these gods, but they're not going to help them. Those are false gods. But they will surely not save them in the time of their disaster. For your gods are as many as your cities, O Judah. They worshipped more gods than they had cities in the south. That's how many false gods they were worshipping. And as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up, the shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. They've broken the covenant. Punishment's coming. Destruction's coming. Well, then what? What about God's people? That's why there has to be a new covenant. Because they've broken it. And all the covenant will do, the old covenant at this point going forward, all that it's going to do is convict people of sin. We see that in the New Testament? Book of Galatians talks about that. And it's going to point people to Christ. What's the old covenant for? What's the law for? It's to convict people of sin and point them to Christ. They've broken it. But already in chapter 29, which we just read, there's a promised restoration coming. Let's look at the new covenant, though. We've talked about it. Chapter 31. Scott, you want to read that for me? 31 verses 31 through 34. So thank the Lord there's a new covenant. As Gentiles, we get to be a part of this. We'll talk about that, hopefully, today. But here's the new covenant promised to Israel. They broke the old. There's no hope for them, right? Well, there is. It's already been hinted, of course, that a Messiah was coming. But he's going to bring in this new covenant. There's a promised restoration. There's good news. Yes, you've sinned. Yes, you've been punished for it. But there's good news coming. And and what kind of good news is this? Forgiveness of sins. And a, and a new heart, really. Ezekiel opens it up a bit more. But a new heart so that you can obey. So that you want to obey. And the law is written in their heart, within them. God's going to put His Spirit in them, in other words, so that they want to and know what to do. And they can seek, of course, through the Scriptures, specifics on that. But the Spirit will convict them. The spirit convicts us. And they'll be cleansed. They'll be forgiven. And they won't have to hear for the first time something from a neighbor they'll already know who the Lord is. The new covenant means when you're saved you know who the Lord is. Yes, you need to grow and be sanctified. But in the old covenant you're born into it. You're born into it. You're born into Israel. People have to tell you more and more about God and no one did in Jeremiah's day. They were talking about false gods. They were talking about pagan gods. They weren't teaching people much about the true God. So the new covenant is this is the first time it's mentioned. It's also going to be mentioned in Ezekiel. And then Jesus will reference that. We'll even see, as we take the Lord's Supper, a connection to the new covenant. Jesus will point to it. This is the new covenant. He's ratifying it in his blood on the cross. He's bringing the new covenant into existence. Any questions so far? I know we're kind of going fast, but we've got lots of interpretive issues. Anybody like the book of Jeremiah? it's in the Bible, so you probably should say yes, but is it anybody's favorite book of the Old Testament? I think I like Isaiah overall, but Jeremiah is important. It's good. The New Covenant. I mean, that's probably one of the best parts of the whole book. All right, if you wanted to pick up a commentary, probably the easiest to access is this Tyndale Old Testament commentary on Jeremiah and Lamentations by Harrison. There's not just a great commentary that I love, but this is probably the easiest. It's not got a lot of Hebrew. It's a little book. These Tyndalls, you know, they're like that thick. There's another one, but it's in a bigger set. Who was the guy you mentioned, Thomas, a couple of weeks ago? Feinberg. Charles Feinberg has, he's the guy who taught MacArthur in seminary, Old Testament scholar. He has one in the Expositor's Bible Commentary set, but it's going to be a little bit thicker. Still probably easy to understand, but this would be the easiest. Jeremiah is a tough book if you're going to teach or preach to it. But it's always nice to have a commentary on hand. You know, you're reading through the Bible and one of your kids or friend or somebody says, what's that verse mean? And sure, you can ask somebody around here, but you may not be able to in enough time. Okay, interpretive problems. So first of all, chapter 1, verse 2. So what, what are interpretive problems? Difficult passages. People debate some of these. Some I don't bring before you because they're silly, like who wrote Jeremiah. That's what the liberals debate about. Who wrote it? Was it 10 authors or five? Most of the time, we don't talk about that. We did a little bit with Isaiah because people say it's a split book with two parts, but Isaiah wrote both. Here, though, we don't talk about who wrote it. We know who wrote it, Jeremiah. But what does this mean in verse 2 of chapter 1? To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. So what year is the thirteenth year of Josiah's reign? Is it when Jeremiah is first called? Or is that when he's born? Now we know the 13th year of his reign is 627 BC. Is that when Jeremiah is first called to be a prophet? Or the year that he's born? Because he's going to go on, God is, to talk about being in the womb before he was born, etc. Well, this one doesn't require a whole lot. I mean, it's got to be his calling. The year he was called. Not the year he was born. He's receiving this message. The words of Jeremiah. See verse 1? The words of Jeremiah. This book starts, and it tells who Jeremiah is. And the word came to him in the days of Josiah. So the the words didn't come to him when he was born, in the womb or anything like that. So God points back to talk about in the womb, but the 13th year in verse 2 here is the year Jeremiah starts his prophetic ministry. Remember, he's probably a young teenager because he's 23 years into it. By the time you get to, what chapter was that, 25? So halfway through the book, he's already 23 years of prophet. Okay, next one. Interpretive problem number two. Write this man, Coniah, childless. Let's go to chapter 22. Do you know who Coniah is? Who's Coniah? Check In the Bible, they just shorten names. Sometimes they give a couple of different names for kings. Twenty-two, twenty-four. As I live, declares the Lord. But when you see that statement, that's that's a serious promise coming. As I live, In other words, this certainly is true. Isn't going to happen? Because God's always existing, always living. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, wore a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. Even though every king of Israel is of the line of David, the kings of Judah are the line of David, and like a ring on God's own hand, he's that connected, the king of the country is, to God. He'll still cast him off. He's going to pull that ring off and I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonians. So Jeconiah is the king as the Babylonians are coming and he refuses to listen. He doesn't like Jeremiah's message, persecutes Jeremiah. He doesn't want to hear the truth. He doesn't obey God. God tells him just to go out, just go out and turn yourself over. This is going to happen. This judgment's going to happen. Just go out and surrender. You'll be taken into captivity. Things will go well with you, better than if you stay and resist. But he won't listen. He's stubborn. Verse 26, I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. So even though you're resisting, you're going to be taken anyway, and you're going to die in a foreign land. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into the land they had not known? So it's sort of a bit of poetry here just to open up the idea. How could you do this, God? How could this happen? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man, uh, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. That sounds serious. So, write this man, Coniah childless. Does it mean that no sons of his will reign as king? That there will be no descendants of his ever on the throne? Why is that a problem? B, who's going to come from this line? Yeah, the, the Messiah could come from this line. I mean, it could also branch back up, right? So that could we could have a problem there. The curse applied to Zedekiah. So is this, is this really not even talking about Jeconiah, but the next king that will sort of be in his place when the Babylonians take away Jeconiah? Well, let's go to 1 Chronicles 3. 1 Chronicles 3, and then Matthew one twelve. Thomas, can you do that one? Matthew one twelve and 1 Chronicles 3, 17 and 18. The sons of Jeconiah, the prisoner, so he's taken into captivity, or Sheltiel, his son, and Malkoram, Padaiah, Shenazar, Jechemiah, Hoshamah, and Nedabiah. Nedabiah. Interesting names for children there. And he goes on, and he lists some more sons of his. Okay, Matthew one twelve, That's good. So what's this about? What's this about? The genealogy of Jesus. So who do we have there? Jeconiah Listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So if it's B, we've got some problems. Why not choose B then? I would go with A, no sons to reign as king. A, I don't know why I highlighted that. I'll have to reference my notes and get back to you. There might be a reason. There might be the curse of Jeconiah I know is an issue. That might be slipping my mind. I was ready to go last Sunday, but no power. It's been a week. So I'll cross-reference these. But certainly, no sons to reign as king because he's taken into captivity. He's gone. Let's look at 2 Kings 25 real quick. 2 Kings 25, verse 6 and 7. So there are some issues with Zedekiah. He's not the greatest either. He's going to rebel as well. So we're at the end of Second Kings, the end of the line of kings, and verse six. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters, and brought him to Babylon. So there is, in a sense, where his sons don't rule either. They're, they're taken. There's no king after Zedekiah. But I don't think it's talking about Zedekiah. we would just say that. He's talking about Jeconiah. And I would say no sons to reign as king, but he does have the descendant of Christ. I'm going to look up Jeconiah's curse, though, and get back to you on that. All right, number three, the 70 years of captivity. You already know this one, but I'll run through them real quick. Is it just talking about a lifespan because it's symbolic? We read the verse on that. Is it talking about an appropriate or complete period of punishment? So, God doesn't really mean literally 70 years, some would say. It's just sort of how long a person lives, so for a generation. Or it's really just symbolic of a period of punishment. doesn't really mean 70. Or should we take it literal, like Daniel does, like the writer of Chronicles does? And if it is literal, then what are the dates? What are the dates? So what do you guys think? Am I going to take it literal or symbolic? Always take it literal unless there's reasons to not take it. And usually the text will indicate that. But it's pretty obvious that he's talking literally, especially since Daniel cites that. And, and the Second Chronicle says that's when they knew it was time to come back. And Ezra speaks of this as well. They knew it was time to go, go back. So what are the dates? Well, 605 to 537 or 536, depending. So roughly 70 years. I think it is exact 70 years. But the problem is our dating, the way we date, the way they dated, can be slightly off. Or you're talking about the Babylonian. talking about the Israelite. And different dates. So, 70 years. 605 is when the first group is taken. Jerusalem's not destroyed to 586. That's why some people say it's the other one. But the first group is taken into captivity in 605. Daniel, all the youngsters. When Nebuchadnezzar first comes, he takes away a lot of people. He leaves some and says, okay... Now you've got to serve me. And the king doesn't want to do that. He rebels against his overlord, Nebuchadnezzar, not according to God's will, because he's prideful and so are the people. They rebel, Nebuchadnezzar. What does the king do when they rebel against him? He goes back and puts the rebellion down. And then this time, to put the rebellion down means to destroy the city. It's the same thing that happened with the Romans. During the New Testament, the Romans rule over Palestine, the area of Israel. They keep rebelling, they keep rebelling. Jesus says, look, you rejected me, you're going to be destroyed. In 70 AD, the Romans say, we've had enough. That's the last rebellion we're going to see for a while, because we're coming to destroy the whole city. That's what happens in ancient times. So I think that it starts in 605, and it goes to 537. That's when the first group comes back, Ezra chapter 1. This is probably the most challenging verse in the whole book. It's a little simple verse. There's not much context, though. Our interpretation of this verse won't make or break us. It won't save us or not save us. It won't cast us out of the faith. But it is interesting. I think I read where a commentator said this is the most challenging passage in the book. So let's go to 31.22. Who's got that one? Autumn? How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. 31.22. So what does that mean? A woman will encompass a man. Now normally... We would just go to the context. It doesn't help us a lot here. Here's your options. Does this mean a virgin with a child? So a woman will encompass a man, meaning her stomach will be around a child. A compass means surround. It means give somebody a big old bear hug, that kind of idea. Or is this a picture of Israel embracing her husband, her husband, her God, Yahweh? Or is this a woman leading and protecting a man? So things are going to be so messed up in Israel that a a woman is going to lead the family. This is often the way a lot of us take it as we just kind of read through it. A woman will encompass sort of like two people running a race and the woman's kind of take off and get in front. Or is this just saying, Israel's so weak, they're only going to overcome strong powers through God's power. So the only way this is going to happen is by God helping them because they're so weak. This idea of weakness. Let's look at the context. Let's back up a bit here. Um, Verse 21. Set up for yourselves road marks. Place for yourself guidepost direct your mind to the highway the way by which you went return o virgin of israel return to these your cities how long will you go here and there so how long are you just going to keep running away from me o faithless daughter so they lack faith for the lord has created a new thing in the earth so whatever this is it's something new god says it's not really happened before a woman will encompass a man so this is something new a virgin with a child would be new but that's not really the context It's not pointing to Christ here. The context of the whole chapter is just going to be Israel's mourning turned to joy. If you read your chapter headings, that's a good summary. Israel's mourning turned to joy. So is this one of those passages about God restoring them? Or is he saying this is bad stuff? Verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once again they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. So it sounds like it's in the context of restoration. It sounds like it's in the context of something good, doesn't it? How many of you guys have done it like me and just read it and thought, oh, this is a woman leading the family and things are that messed up in Israel? Because there are other passages like that, right? What is it? Well, this is tough. Probably Israel embracing her husband, Yahweh. So something new is going to happen. How's that new? I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe because Israel's never fully embraced their God and followed God like he's called them to. But with this new covenant that's coming, they'll be able to. That's probably the best. We just don't have a lot of context here. But I do think the context is one of restoration. So it's a good thing. What's the nature of the new covenant? So this is debated amongst good and godly men. It's debated amongst Christians. Is this another covenant? Replacing the Mosaic covenant? Or renewal of the Mosaic covenant? Now there's some things about the new covenant that are debated. uh, Various things. This one I think is more clear and less debated than others will get to, but it's new. There's an old, and there's a new, and the book of Hebrews says what? The new replaces the old, so it's another covenant. It's not just a renewal of the mosaic. That tends to sound like we're still under the old covenant, and you read the book of Hebrews, and that one's clear. Jesus talking about the new covenant, other passages of the New Testament. Okay, so a little bit more challenging. Chapter 31, verse 33. What is this law? Literally the word's Torah, which means teaching. What's this law that's going to be put within them? That's part of the new covenant. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. And on the heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They couldn't follow my law. It was outside of them. They tried, they tried. They turned it into an idol, really the law. And God says, I'm going to solve that. I'm going to put it within you. The teaching is going to be in you. So what is this? The Mosaic law? What's the problem with that? It's the old covenant. So with a new covenant, we expect a law that goes along with that. So there's, there's some issues with that. Is this future new laws? So is there going to be some new laws sort of added? Is this just generally the will of God? You will know the will of God. Yeah, I mean, I would say that there's some truth to that. But I specifically think it's talking about the law of Christ, the law of Christ, which is mentioned three places in the New Testament and I think alluded to in other places. Let's look at a few of those as we have time. Romans ten four, CJ, can you do that one? Romans ten four, And James, 1 Corinthians nine eleven, And Hector Galatians 6, 2. So this is something new. It, it goes along with the new covenant. The old covenant had the Mosaic law. Christ is the end of the law. OK, so then what? What are we talking about here? The law of Christ. Is there similarities? Yeah, same God, same principles. Most of the nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. But Paul says it's something a little different. Romans 10 4. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. So Christ is the end of the law. He, he's not destroyed the Old Testament, he's not, um, he said every jot and tittle will last, but he's completed it. The book of Hebrews said it was no use to us. All those animals being sacrificed wouldn't save us. We needed the Savior. Now there is a use to the law in the Old Testament still. Conviction of sin, point to Christ. The Reformers were really big on that. Martin Luther said, you know, the laws is beating us like Paul talks about in Galatians. He's the pedagogue, the guy that sort of whips the kid to get to school. 1 Corinthians 9-11. If we sow spiritual things in you, it is too much if we reap material from you is that right Do I have the right reference? Are you on 1 no, corinthians second Corinthians in that does not sound right second Corinthians usually the slides autocorrect corinthians to, to four f o r somebody look up the law of Christ in first Corinthians if you got software, Hector has software, but he's about to read a verse so galatians six two bear one of those burdens, thereby fulfill the law of Christ, the commands of Christ the teachings of Christ. Jesus said the Great Commission is to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. He didn't say teach them to observe Leviticus or teach them to observe Numbers, Deuteronomy. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And Paul makes this differentiation in 1 Corinthians. Who's got that? 9.21. One number can send you off the wrong direction. 9.21. I got that one. Let's back up to verse 20 and we'll just end here. Think about this. To the Jew, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, capital L, Mosaic law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law. So I lived like them when I was with them. I submitted to them. When I went to eat dinner with them to tell them the gospel, I didn't eat pork. I can eat pork, Paul says. I'm a new covenant Christian. But I submitted myself temporarily to their law. But he says, though not being myself under that law, not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law, the Mosaic law. To those who are without law, that's the Gentiles, they're without any law. They don't have the Mosaic law. They don't have any laws of God as without law. So Paul says, when I went to the Gentiles, I could eat bacon. I could eat shellfish, catfish. Not that he probably did, but he could have, right? He's not bound by those types of things. He says, I was without law, though not being without the law of God. So it's not like he has no law at all. Just because somebody's not in the Mosaic law doesn't mean they have no law. That's antinomianism. That's to go do what you want. Paul says, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying I don't have any law, but under the law of Christ. Why did he do all this? Why does he submit temporarily to their different kinds of things for the Jews? He doesn't have to worry about with the Gentiles so that I might win those who are without law. Without law. So that I might win the Gentiles that are without law. I still have the law of God, the law of Christ. So what is the law of God? Well, in the old covenant, it's the Mosaic covenant, Mosaic law. In the new, it's the law of Christ. Those are similarities, of course. Lots of them. Is the Old Testament so valuable? Of course. So we're going to talk more about that next week. We'll start with uh, number seven. Is that the last one? So this gets into the question, well, what's the relationship of the new covenant and its relationship to the church? What is that? We'll have to save that one for next week and then we'll start lamentations or probably get lamentations all done. Lord, we thank you for our time of study. I pray, Lord, that we might read Jeremiah, that we might understand these passages better, that we might especially understand the new covenant. It is so precious to us. It is so important. While it was given to Israel, even us Gentiles get to be grafted in. We get to hear the good news of Christ. We get to to be saved and made new, regenerated, given the Spirit, given your law. We're thankful. We're thankful that we have the law of Christ. We're thankful that we have Christ giving us his commands, the whole New Testament, Lord. We're so grateful to have it to live by. Help us understand your word better. Help us to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.